Hi, everyone. Here on December 8th, 2015, in our Time Capsule episode, a.k.a. Weekend Saturday Selects, we are going to take you back and talk about an American hero by the name of Carl Sagan in the appropriately titled podcast episode, Carl Sagan, colon, American Hero. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark with Charles W. Chuck Bryant and Noel. The stint of Noel is winding down, sadly. That's <laughs> such an awkward thing. <laughs> Having Noel here? He's no, right there. the stint of Noel. Right. Yeah. Oh, you mean the wording? Yeah, wording's fine. All right. How you doing? I'm fine. Just like that wording. I'm sleepy. Why about? I've just been staying up late writing till one and two in the morning like a dope like i'm like 17 oh yeah yeah a manifesto no (laughs) no just staying up too late typing that's neat do you drink wine while you type uh last night it was bullet bourbon yeah and then you're just like i'm not typing words correctly anymore and then you know it's time for bed you get on a roll and then you look up and it's two at two a.m nice man i'm glad to hear that 6 30 rolls around and here we are that's awesome yeah that's great. So your creative juices are flowing? They're flowing, baby. You know who else's juices were flowing and still flow through this universe? <laughs> Carl Sagan. <laughs> he was. He was a creative science type. Yeah. And it made him kind of controversial. Man. It, it also made him beloved. Beloved and uh, I think one of like the precursors to what we do, you know? Mm-hmm. In fact, he uh, there's a quote. On him being an explainer, which yeah. I, I thought was very cool. Which is the geekiest term ever, but it's a pretty, it's a good term. Science explainer. explainer. Yeah, he said, uh, I think I'm able to explain things because understanding wasn't entirely easy for me. Some things uh, that the most brilliant students were able to see instantly, I had to work to understand. I can remember uh, what I had to do to figure it out. The very brilliant ones figure it out so fast. That sounds familiar. They never see the mechanics of understanding. Yeah. So I really identified with that. I'm like, man. That's kind of what we do, you know. We work really hard at understanding this because we're not experts. <laughs> no. And he wasn't an expert on one thing. He covered a lot of, that's what made him unique. Right. A lot of different facets of science. Yeah. Which you don't see much. No, you don't. I mean, it does pop up here and there. But if you if you think about the people who are like that, like Jared Diamond is a really good current example. Neil Tyson. Screech? No, that's Dustin Diamond. Oh, okay. Jared Diamond, uh, man, I don't even remember what he's trained in. Uh, he's just such a, a generalist. Yeah. But he wrote like Guns, Germs, and Steel. Oh, that guy, yeah. Um, yeah, he's got a little little Robert Bork beard. And really? Good guy. Um, he's one. Neil deGrasse Tyson has definitely become one. Yeah. He's... Although he's still uh, very much a, an astrophysician, right? Yeah, but he's he sort of talked about a lot of times in terms of being like Sagan, and not just because he rebooted Cosmos, which was Sagan's show, mm-hmm. but um, oh yeah, he's just the face of science. Like he's the go-to guy. Sure, I mean, like he was the obvious choice for Cosmos because he was oh, sure. already so much like Sagan. Yeah, following in those footsteps for sure. There's other guys. There's like Brian Greene as a science explainer. Bill Nye is a science explainer. Yeah, love Bill Nye. Um, they're definitely out there for sure. But you can uh, you make a good point that Sagan was one of the originals, if not the original. But the idea that uh, he was somebody who was willing to draw parallels from different disciplines in science or bring them together to create 
um, something approachable for people to kind of invigorate people's love of science. I, I think it's amazing. Yeah, it, it, it made him beloved. It also just it made him not reviled. This is not the right word, but he was definitely criticized in the scientific ex- establishment. Uh, in parts, for sure. Some yeah. people in the scientific establishment loved him. And some were like, uh, you're not doing much real research. Uh, You know, you're just sort of a face guy. And um, I poo-poo that entirely and say that he did a lot for science. And people like him are are necessary, and uh, I value their work. Okay. You're taking a stand, huh? Yeah, man. Carl Sagan's amazing. He's one of my heroes. Yeah, he's good I watched Cosmos when I was 10 years old. I have never seen it. Oh, man. It was great. Yeah. I mean, it was a PBS show that had tens of millions of, of viewers. No, I know. Millions and, and millions. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's your Sagan? Yeah, and you know what? He he told Johnny Carson he never said billions and billions. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did, he said billions upon billions, right? I never heard it. There's a supercut on YouTube of all of his billions, millions, and trillions from <laughs> Cosmos right. cut to uh, with a like, hip-hop music bed. Mm-hmm. And um, is that um, a glorious dawn? Uh, I don't remember the name of it. There's one. There is a video, a, a song that somebody created with him, uh, a supercut of him. It's called Glorious Dawn. It's pretty great. Well, I never heard billions and billions in there. There's a lot of billions and millions and trillions. He mm-hmm. loved those words, right? But um, he said I never specifically said billions and billions. And uh, I couldn't, I didn't hear it either, so. He, he's a misunderstood genius. Yeah, it became, uh, I think Carson did it first, or maybe it was Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And then that just became the thing. Billions and billions. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he is a weird little dude, for sure, in a lot of ways, you know. Yeah. It's uh, easily parody, but he also seemed to have a, a fairly good sense of humor about himself, at least, and in general. He smoked grass. He thought grass was far out. <laughs> Man, we just vaulted back in time with that one. Yeah. He smoked the marijuana grass. Uh, making it contemporary. <laughs> he was on the pot. Yeah, he did. He liked to smoke weed. And um, in fact, I have a quote here from, uh, he wrote an essay. <laughs> the quote reads, in <laughs> Wowie Zowie. Uh, best pavement album, by the way. He wrote an essay uh, in. Uh, I don't know about that. Oh, uh, yeah? What's your favorite? Um, I think. Slanted and Enchanted? Yes. The first one? It's hard Although to, Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain was pretty good. No, I've never seen him more interested in what we're talking about. <laughs> it's funny, in college we used to have a saying, it's not a matter of which album are we going to listen to next, it's which pavement album are we going to listen to next. See, you should put that on a t-shirt. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, Sagan wrote an essay in uh, Marijuana Reconsidered, um, and here is one of his quotes. He said, The cannabis experience has greatly improved my appreciation for art a subject which I had never much appreciated before. The understanding of the intent of the artist, which I can achieve when high, sometimes carries over to when I'm down. This is one of many human frontiers which cannabis has helped me traverse. <laughs> was that Kermit the Frog doing Carl Sagan? Yeah, that was sort of Kermity. <laughs> uh, but he, uh, yeah, I mean, that's not, it doesn't define him or anything, but yeah, he liked to... Yeah, smoke the pot, and he likes sure. to get out his little tape recorder and talk about stuff. Put on a turtleneck? Yeah. With nothing else? It was the 60s and 70s. Of course sure. he was. And I think the 80s and maybe even into the 90s. <laughs> That's true. So um, let's, let's, I guess, let's go back to the beginning. We've done some pretty good teasing here, right? Yes. And when you're talking about a human being, uh, there's no place better to start at the beginning 
than with their birth. 1934, Brooklyn, New York. Yeah. Uh, his mother was, uh, Rachel, was uh, a garment industry manager and apparently pretty I think his dad was. Oh, yeah, yeah. But his mom was overbearing. Yes, mom was overbearing. Sorry, dad was a Ukrainian immigrant, Samuel, who worked as a garment industry manager. Because mm-hmm. in 1934, they probably didn't hire women to do jobs like that, right. which is really stinky. So, uh, and we, it's not like we've met the lady or anything and can report that she's overbearing. The, the idea that she's overbearing comes from this longstanding image of her. Of She had very high hopes and high expectations and aspirations for Carl. Very well may have made the man. <clears throat> yeah. You know? Uh, moved to New Jersey uh, after a little while and uh, was voted the class brain at Rahway High School. And I thought this was interesting in this – what article is this? The New Yorker? Which one? Why, why Carl Sagan's truly irreplaceable? Yeah, or it's Smithsonian. Smithsonian. Joel Achenbach. Uh, it was a great article, though. Mm-hmm. But um, they, they tracked down uh, in 1953 a questionnaire from high school – that he had to fill out on, on his own character traits. All right. And Sagan said he gave himself low marks for vigorousness, like with sports, uh, an average rating for emotional stability, <laughs> and the highest ratings for being dominant and reflective. I'm going to start using that vigorousness. Yeah. Man, I worked out this morning. I'm so vigorous. <laughs> um, so that's not just a, a piece of paper they dug up, Chuck. That's from his archives. Yeah. Which were actually sold to the Library of Congress by his widow, um, what is his widow's name? Anne? Anne Druyan, one of his, uh, well, his, yeah, his widow. Right. But he was married three times. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, Anne sold the papers or supplied the papers for uh, an honorarium, I guess, to the Library of Congress. And the Library of Congress got that money from Seth MacFarlane. Yeah. So basically, Seth MacFarlane bought Carl Sagan's papers and donated them to the Library of Congress. Yes, that's which why is it's pretty co- cool. <laughs> that's why it's called the Seth MacFarlane Collection. Of the Carl Sagan and Anne Drurian archive. Right. Uh, had to put his name on there. <laughs> well, I mean, sure. Why not, you know? No, it's fine. He's, he's, he's a huge fan of his work, and he's uh, the he, one who rebooted Cosmos. Right. And genuinely, like, I, I mean, I, I, I got to say, like, whatever you have to say about Seth MacFarlane, uh, there is plenty to say I think about great. Seth MacFarlane. He, he, is, he proved himself a true fan of Carl Sagan and a rich guy. Too. I'm a fan. I've always liked Family Guy, so yeah. I, don't, I don't have anything bad to say about him. Uh, what, have you seen American Dad? No, I never got into that, actually. It's okay. Yeah? It's not Family Guy, but it's definitely just totally different. Gotcha. Uh, 798 boxes of stuff, of yeah. archival material. Um, the guy loved to uh, log every conversation he ever had and mm-hmm. every thought that ever entered his brain, uh, mainly through cassette tape. Right. But um, I guess that was transcribed uh, by other folks. Yeah. Uh, apparently, that's um, Joel Achenbach um, says that his his writing style was so conversational because he didn't write. He dictated into a dictaphone, and then it was transcribed, basically. Basically, he was like the Hunter S. Thompson of science. Yeah. Remember Hunter T. had like the sure. reel to reel he'd wear around his neck? When one is high on marijuana, it is a buzzkill to type. And actually, <laughs> that's funny. We bring up Hunter Thompson. Hunter Thompson loved acid. You know who else loved acid? Timothy Leary. You know who hung out with Timothy Leary? Carl Sagan. Yeah. Timothy Leary was trying to get Sagan to advise him on how to build a, an interstellar arc. Because Leary just totally lost his stuff by this time, right? Man, we should do a show on him. Oh, yeah. I'm surprised we haven't That'd yet. be crazy. Um, 
Let's do it, man. Yeah. We should. We should do one on like the Merry Pranksters, the whole thing. Yeah. Just basically redo the the electric Kool-Aid acid test. Totally. That'd be a good episode. Yeah. But Leary, um, at a, a mental institution, because uh, he'd been popped with a bunch of acid, I think, had a visitor in Carl Sagan and Frank Drake of the famous Drake Equation. Mm-hmm. And they came by to say hi, and, and Leary was like, seriously, you guys have to help me design this. And they were like... This, the closest star is too far away, you kook. Yeah. This isn't going to work. And Leary said he, he sensed that they had some sort of neural blockage. That's why they couldn't think yeah. <laughs> like he could. Yeah. Man. So that was Carl Sagan, Timothy Leary's story. But I think they stayed in touch. Oh, I'm sure they did. So uh, young Sagan, is uh, his life kind of changes when he goes to the World's Fair in 1939. He was just five years old. You remember whose World's Fair that was? Was that no? I don't. Was it Chicago? Eddie no. Bernays's. Oh yeah, that was the one. Wow, the one that changed everything, including Carl Sagan. Boy, that's a big one. Yeah. Um, so Sagan goes to the World's Fair, and it, it, it was sort of a a great time um, to be a young kid interested in science because mm-hmm. in the late '30s and '40s and '50s, it was like the everyone was captivated by the future. Right, there was this idea that science could do anything. Yeah. Anything, and very soon would. It was really exciting, and um, it was just a great time to be to be into it. It's uh, the, the uh, what's his name? Oppenheimer? Mm-hmm. No. Abelhaba? Oppenheimer. No, I'm talking about the article right Oh, here. Achenbach. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, yeah, Oppenheimer. <laughs> the nuclear oh, oh, bomb. Oh, this guy, yeah. I'm the, I'm become death. That's what I thought you were talking about. Uh, in the article, he makes a great point about, um, just that, that time period and, um, how exploratory everything was really from then, like through the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was a great, like 40 year period in science where basically there was funding and like anything's possible. We can do anything we want Mm -hmm. until they started to, you know, I guess disprove things here and there. Right. And actually what's interesting is there's a corresponding boost in technology from that era too. And a lot of people point out that all of the stuff from about 1975 on is actually built on the backs of the stuff that was built in the 40 years before that from about 1935 to 1975. Yeah. And ever since then we've hit a technological plateau. Yeah. It's really interesting. And you don't think about it. You're like, well, no, I mean, we have iPhones now. It's like, yeah, iPhones are all, they're a combination of different stuff that was first discovered or invented 40 or more years ago. Yeah. Um, and basically everything's like that. We, we're in a slump right now. So yeah. it was not only a, a time where they thought science could do anything, science was doing just about anything. And, yeah. And we've since hit a plateau. And um, he, uh, the author described him, I thought it was a great uh, description, uh, Sagan as a nuanced referee because a uh, really cool thing about Sagan was he was very grounded in science and proof and facts, but he wasn't um, he wasn't just a square and a skeptic, he although was he was a skeptic. And square. Yeah, but he was also, like, he wanted to, to find life on other planets. Sure. And he didn't shut things down. No. And he was all about the discussion of everything as long as you still did the research and were grounded in facts. As a matter of fact, and he did not believe in UFOs. He, he did not think that UFOs were extraterrestrial spacecraft. But in 1969, he mounted a conference on UFOs in which everyone apparently had their say. All sides. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't like a, we're mounting a conference on UFOs. You can come so the rest of us can poo-poo your ideas and beliefs. It was come and share your your position on it. 
That's enormous. I yeah. mean, that in and of itself is worth remembering the person for. But this is 1969 before he'd even become like a, a household name or anything like it. Yeah, and I, I like to think we do that. And um, we still get emails, though. We got one today from people that said it's it's dangerous to even mention uh, other schools of thought. That's dogmatic. Yeah, and I just, I don't agree, That's man. That's dogmatic and closed-minded. And don't even, bring, don't even email us with that crap. Yeah. Just don't. Yeah. Don't even bother because we're gonna we're gonna make fun of you on the air. <laughs> yeah, because that's not what our show's about. Even if we don't believe something, we like to throw all sides out there because I think uh, discussion is healthy no matter what. Sure, that's just me. Even when we were mocking crop circles, we still like talked about crop circles, did we not? It's not like we just pretended like there wasn't such a thing as crop circles. That's right. And we have Carl Sagan to thank for laying that golden path in front of us. So uh, you want to take a break? I don't want to, but we have to. We need to, man. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll be right back. All right, so we've been beating around the bush here. Um, Have we? Let's talk. Well, not really. Okay, we've been getting into it, but yeah. let's let's talk about some of the things that Sagan. Uh, he he wasn't just some Johnny come lately. He had uh, degree upon degree. I think he had. He had billions and billions <laughs> of degrees. Well, he had an undergrad degree. He had his master's. He had his PhD. He was uh, he was. A, well-versed in a lot of realms of science, but his big thing was astronomy. Right. He had uh, two degrees in undergrad and master's in physics and then a doctorate in astronomy. Um, and f- he did a little stint at Harvard. Yeah. Didn't get tenure. No. So he's like, I'm out of here. Yeah. And Cornell was like, you come to us. Yes. And uh, we will treat you like a god. And they did. And he settled in at Cornell and set up a um, his own lab, right? The Laboratory for Planetary, for planetary Studies. Yes. Uh, and he just, that was when he really started to get going. He was doing side work for NASA at the time as well, doing oh, consulting. Yeah. He did that throughout his whole career. F- formulas, that kind of stuff. Sure. When NASA is picking your brain about, like, the Apollo mission, uh-huh. you're, you're doing pretty well for yourself yeah. as a scientist. But so he had this 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 potential to, to really go as sciencey as he wanted to with this stuff. And he did in some ways, in a lot of ways, with his consulting with NASA. But he also kind of pushed NASA into uh, humanities um, direction as well. Yeah. Like the, the uh, Voyager disks. That's a, that's a really great example of it. Like he talked NASA into including disks on Voyager 1 and 2. Are you talking about the golden record? Yeah. Yeah. That are that are basically like here's some stuff that represents humanity and Earth. Yeah, pretty much like if we ever do find life on Earth, we need to have something to offer them to represent us. Or so, life elsewhere, you mean? Yeah, yeah. What I say, life on Earth. Yeah, yeah. There's life on Earth. It's pretty much <laughs> documented as fact. Life out there, extraterrestrial life. He said we need to to present ourselves and what Earth is like and what humans are like. So uh, he included 115 images uh, representing the diversity of life, and then. Uh, Sounds basically like his wife. Literally, this is pretty out there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if marijuana had anything to do with it. Uh, I think so. Yeah, his wife Anne. She created her own sounds for the project. Basically, she meditated and then thought, told the story of the universe mm-hmm. by thinking it with her brain, <laughs> right. and then those brain waves were translated into music. 
And she said, my mind also wandered to my love of my husband. Mm -hmm. So that was translated. So they blasted, that was her message that they blasted out in space, which is pretty far out. Right. But but awesome. Messages of love. Sure, know? man. It's pretty neat. He wasn't afraid to show his tender side. No. No, no, he definitely wasn't. He was uh, vulnerable in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, and also on those discs, there's, I believe, etchings of a man and a woman. I think it's etched on the disc. And they're like laser disc size. They're super retro. Sure. And made of gold, which is pretty cool. Um, and then there's a, a de- basically a depiction of where Earth is in the Milky Way, I believe. So it's basically saying, we're here if you ever find this. Yeah. And then, of course, um, Voyager 1, I believe, uh, got lost and aw- awakened and became uh, sentient and then became a god on, to some beings, remember, in, I think, Star Trek 1, the, mm. uh, the first movie. I never saw those. V'ger. You never saw any of the Star Trek movies? Dude, I've never seen one episode of the TV show. I've never seen one episode of Next Generation. Yeah, no. I the know. only Star Trek thing I've ever ingested was... Uh, Our apologies to Will Wheaton, by the way. <laughs> was that first movie that J.J. Abrams did. I saw that. I saw the second one of that. I also saw, I think, Star Trek... Maybe one, two, and three. Right. And in time. one of those, there's this god, V'ger, who's like this artificial intelligence, and they yeah. finally meet V'ger and realize that the Oya is is blotted out, and it's really <laughs> Voyager 1, the space probe. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I thought it was pretty neat, too. I'm not a Trekkie by any means, but yeah, they I, were still entertaining movies. I just never got into it. I was always a Star Wars guy. Not that they're mutually exclusive, but I don't know. It just didn't grab me. You know, who would have predicted that we go off on a Star Trek tangent in the Carl Sagan episode. <laughs> Although I think I've told the story of working on a commercial with William Shatner. You have. Didn't he, like, uh, bend you over a car and pretend to arrest you? No, that was Ponch. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, Shatner was T.J. Hooker. It could have happened. Yeah, he was great, though. He was awesome. He loved being William Shatner. Oh, yeah, man. You can tell that guy wears it like a, a suit. Yeah, he, 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 was, he was awesome. Very nice guy. So um, we're getting off track again here. Sagan. Was sciency, there was actual science to stuff. As a matter of fact, the yes. idea of the greenhouse effect uh, is rooted partially in his work. Yeah, I mean that that had been around since the late nineteenth century, but um, he looked at like a planet like Venus mm-hmm. and said, you know what, Venus is really hot, and I think why it's because this greenhouse effect, and um, then because of that work, people started thinking, well, maybe Earth has a greenhouse effect going on, too. Right. It really opened the door for that line of thought. It did. And he's correct. Earth definitely does have a greenhouse effect, and it's problematic. Correct. Uh, another one that he's widely cited for is the faint young, young sun paradox. Um, I don't know if, they, if he was the one who first pointed this out. Or uh, if he just kind of built upon it. And it's still not fully solved I think yet. so. He and George Mullen uh, figured this out. I'm pretty sure, yeah. So the idea is that Earth, early on in its history, was a ball of ice. But problematically, there was also some liquid water on Earth, too. It wasn't all ice. And this doesn't make much sense because the sun, as it stands now, is just about enough to keep Earth from, from being a frozen ball of ice. Yeah. But back then, when Earth was mostly a frozen ball of ice, the sun was only at like 70% of its luminosity, or lumosity, luminosity. One of those. Yeah. Luminosity, right? Yeah. Sure. Um, that it is today. 
And so it doesn't make sense that there should be any liquid water on Earth. And it's called the faint young sun paradox. And um, I believe they figured out, or they Sagan and Mullen said, oh, well, it's the greenhouse effect. Yeah, and I don't think they ever fully settled on that. Um, no, still, it's, it's outstanding. Yeah. They it, think it might be a combination of that and some other stuff. That's right. Uh, what else did he do? He looked at um, Titan, Saturn's moon at one point, mm-hmm. and said, you know what? Uh, I think there's organic molecules up there, and that's why it looks red. And he was right. Yeah. He went, ta-da. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he, he wasn't afraid to throw a wacky hypothesis out there, and that did not do him any favors in the scientific community either. No, because there is a definite um, arrogance associated with throwing out the hypothesis and not doing the work, leaving it to other people to do the work, and then you still get the credit for throwing the hypothesis out there. Um, it's it, it it's one of the it's one of the main reasons why Sagan was highly criticized by some people in the scientific community. Yeah, there's um in the Smithsonian article um, they say there's sort of an unwritten rule among scientists: uh, thou shalt not speculate, thou shalt not talk about things outside your immediate area of expertise. That's a big one that he transgressed. Yeah, he was all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thou shalt not horse around on late night TV talk shows. Yeah, with Carson. Yeah, he was on Carson two dozen times over a couple of decades right. and was, like I said, sort of the Neil deGrasse Tyson. He was the go-to when anyone in the press needed anything for television. Mm-hmm. He was the guy. and uh, Anything that had anything even remotely yeah. to do with science, even if it had to do with theology. Yeah. And somebody wanted a science's opinion of theology, go to Carl Sagan. Yeah. And so from Sagan's, uh, his point of view, he's just furthering science. What's the problem? Sure. From the other scientist's point of view, it's like it makes it look like Carl Sagan is trained in everything from astrophysics, which he was, to theology and biology and anthropology and every ology in between. And he wasn't. True. There's some professional jealousy, too, you know? Yeah. I think um, you know how it is. Sure. Like he's getting all the press and uh, other folks are stuck in a lab doing what they think is the real work. Right. So I kind of get it in a way, but I just think that people like Bill Nye and Tyson and and Sagan are hugely necessary. Sure. You know, you got to have a face out there furthering it. You definitely need. You know? Yep. And you got to have a media outlet like Parade Magazine to put that face on. <laughs> yeah. That was his go-to for sure. Oh, uh, was he in there a lot? Oh, yeah. It was... Um, That's the Sunday insert, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and that was like kind of the big joke is that he stopped publishing in academic journals and started publishing in Parade Magazine. Yeah. And if you remember in our um, nuclear winter episode. Yeah, he was – did he completely in, uh, think of that? No. He just furthered it. He was part of a, a group that, that was organized that basically said like if you guys start setting off nuclear bombs – it's not going to be this thing that just ends. Like, yeah. There's going to be this thing called nuclear winter. And they hadn't done all the science yet before he went and wrote an article in Parade Magazine and told the world about nuclear winter. And in the, the opinion of the scientists he was working with, like really undermined their case because it sensationalized it. Yeah, but what it also did was it got your, your average Joe thinking about nuclear war yeah. and the Cold War and maybe we shouldn't be – Zooming toward our own demise right. at 100 miles an hour. Agreed, man. And uh, that, that's the big back and forth about Sagan's legacy. Yeah. Or the, the actual work he did, too. Yeah, and you mentioned the theology. He was famously um, 
spiritual agnostic. He was a spiritual agnostic is how he defined himself. Yeah, he didn't classify himself as, as atheist. No, and the reason why, true to Sagan's own, um, own way, was that he could not scientifically prove that there was not God. So he said, how can I call myself an atheist? Yep. Which is um, it's pretty cool. And actually, he's the guy, supposedly, that coined the term extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. That's what I hear. Does that go back to him? Mm-hmm. So he's like, skeptics love the dude. Oh, yeah. He's the, the, the father of the skeptic. But I think he, I don't know, I think he gives skeptics the good name. Sure. Because he yeah. wasn't a poo-pooer. If you want to prove your bones to how hardcore a skeptic you are, you criticize Carl Sagan in the skeptic community. Oh, yeah? You can really show that you're a super <laughs> skeptic. Right. Yeah. Sagan was a milk toast as far as skeptics go. Yeah, because he would indulge skeptics. other lines of thought. Right. Um, but still require proof, but he wouldn't just shut it down right, right out of the gate. No. So uh, we will get back to Carl Sagan right after these messages. All right, Chuckers, we're back. Yes. So um, there was one thing that Carl Sagan, he would poke fun at himself. He never abandoned it. It was this idea that possibly, maybe, just maybe, um, there was intelligent life out there. Yeah. And um, I think... He wanted there to be. For sure. You know? Uh, He helped disprove or set the conditions against life being out there for sure. Like, for example, um, he suggested that on Mars, the shifting features of Mars were a result of um, dust storms. And it turned out he was right. But those dust storms also basically said, there's probably not life on Mars. Yeah. Just from that reason alone, those horrible dust storms, right? Yeah. And he um, actually, he won a Pulitzer Prize for uh, some of his work. I think he wrote more than a dozen books. Mm -hmm. But uh, one of the things he wrote was uh, Contact, the novel. Not, uh, you know, he was totally into sci-fi and wrote, you know, the movie uh, Contact, uh, McConaughey and Jodie Foster. Mm -hmm. That was based on his novel. And, of course, that movie was about sending signals into outer space trying to find life. So you could tell the guy it was something he loved to talk about and write about. Oh, yeah. But he also loved it, uh, like, actually that that kind of research. Yeah. Which is totally up his alley. Like, SETI. Um, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is is evidence based and science based search for extraterrestrials, right? Yes. That was that's Carl Sagan through and through. That's just totally him. He was um, he wanted to believe in extraterrestrial life, but he needed proof to believe in it. Really? Yeah. He just couldn't make that jump to just saying yes, they they exist without any proof. Yeah, exactly. So he's writing books. He's uh, NASA's picking his brain. He's all over the place, and uh, he eventually, we've talked about his TV show, it, it debuted on, um, well, actually, it debuted in 1981? Yeah. I thought 80. Was it 80? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was 1980. Um, so I must have been nine years old. I was four. I thought I was 10. What month was it? Uh, I don't know. I don't either. Um, but he, originally, it was the TV series was going to be called Man in the Cosmos, but he uh, thought that was sexist, and he was a feminist. Mm-hmm. So he said um, he proposed a couple of more titles. Uh, one was called There. Terrible. 
T-H-E-R-E, uh, with some subtitle. And then the other was Cosmos along yeah. with the subtitle. Um, and he spent like three years around the world filming this thing, right? Yeah, and it just, it was a, it was, it's not like it ran for seasons and seasons. It was like a, a, a single run of shows <laughs> on PBS. that a Television um, event. Yeah, it was a TV event, exactly. One of the other things that he did, which I never knew, was he wrote, along with his son now, because his son uh, has a byline, I guess. Jimmy Sagan? No. Todd Sagan? No. He has, he has five kids, I think, total. Okay. But one of his sons became a sci-fi writer, another one became more of a science uh, writer. Uh-huh. So and, basically, he split into two. Yeah. Actually, I never thought about it that way. Bam. Um, I but, just explained his, two of his kids' <laughs> existence. He wrote the uh, entry for uh, Life. Oh, yeah. For Encyclopedia Britannica. Yep. Like, this is what life is. Yeah, he was a fairly energetic dude. For sure. Yeah, to say the least. I mean, he did Cosmos in his mid-40s, just yeah. out of nowhere. He's got a lot like, accomplished for a pothead. <laughs> he really did, yeah. yeah. He's like the Cypress Hill of of science. Uh, I don't know. Hey, they man, they, they put out like three albums in like four or five years. Oh, uh, yeah? It's a lot of work. And then retired. Yeah. Sagan did not retire. No, he did not, sir. He worked up until his death in 1996. Yeah, he dies after battling um, a bone marrow disease for about a year or so, two two years, I think, is closer. Um, he was diagnosed with it, and he needed a transplant, and his sister uh, stepped up and volunteered to give him a donation and did. And uh, it, apparently it wasn't quite enough because he died of an infection after about a year and a half after um, the uh, transplant. Yeah, just 64 years old. Yeah. Too, way, way too young. It really is. And in fact, yesterday... The day we're recording this is uh, November 10th. Mm-hmm. I believe yesterday was his, would have been his 81st birthday. Oh, yeah. You didn't plan that? Nope. Wow. That's that pretty weird? impressive, Chuck. Yeah. He's speaking to me from billions of light years away. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's funny that you say that because somebody wrote to him. Um, they said, how do you know that there's not a heaven? And um, he had this really great response. He, he Remember in his archives, he was a pack rat, so he kept a lot of correspondence. And yeah. From it, they found um, in this Achimbach um, article, there's a, a citation of a, a letter that he wrote to somebody. And um, he says, thanks for your letter. Nothing like the Christian notion of heaven has been found out to about 10 billion light years. And then in parentheses, he puts one light year is almost 6 trillion miles. Best wishes. And th- the yeah. point is, like... He 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 took the time to write the letter back to this guy. Like he would engage, rather than just ignore the letter entirely. Yeah. So he entertained and indulged people's ideas enough that he would engage with somebody he didn't even know about whether there's heaven or not. And this this was sent um, the year he died, actually. Oh wow! So he's writing this from his sickbed. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, as far as whether or not it bothered him, uh, whether or not he was how he was. Th- thought of in the scientific community um it kind of all came to a head in 1992 uh he was on a list to be included um as a nominee for the national academy of sciences mm-hmm. uh in the end he was not included and it bothered him um he kind of brushed it off to to people in public saying that you know i didn't think i would get in anyway mm-hmm. but his widow said uh quote it was painful it seemed like a uh, unsolicited slight, mm-hmm. end quote. And in 1994, they ended up giving him an honorary medal, which was nice. 
But uh, that was definitely a, a big sting for him. Yeah, the National Academy of Sciences said, nope, you're not a member. Yeah. You're not one of us. They basically said that the, the actual research that you did wasn't strong enough. Right. Which, uh, eh, that stinks. It sounds like a definite calculated slight. Yeah. 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 He's included in my book. Yeah, for <laughs> sure, man. Uh, so my hat is off to you, sir, forever. You got anything else? No, man. I just, uh, someone needs to make a... a great documentary or movie about the guy yeah you know starring ashton kutcher <laughs> oh, as carl sagan <laughs> that guy can play anybody yeah uh if you want to know more about carl sagan you can start with this delightful little article on how stuff works by typing carl sagan in the search bar and since i said search bar it's time for listener mail hey guys my name is connie i've been a listener for a couple of months after my brother turned me on to the show uh since then i've been completely obsessed and haven't been able to stop listening I'm on track to become a nurse, so I can, uh, can't get enough of anything science or biology related. Uh, I want to thank you for a couple of things. I'm in a base-level anatomy class right now, and the Rigor Mortis podcast saved my behind and my grade on my cadaver dissection and muscles test. A lot of the things uh, you covered, like the nature of the muscle's relationship with ATP and the integral proteins, really helped me pass my exam and not pass out in the cadaver lab. Uh, you also even taught my anatomy professor something new about cells. Nice. How about that? Uh, last year I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression due to the fact that I could never really fit in the right way. I lost almost all of my friends when I made an early jump from high school to college and being able to count on you two uh, weekly has really helped a little bit uh, with the loneliness and learning something new is always a healthy distraction from anxiety. So you guys really give me something new and exciting to discuss and learn about twice a week when you work 40 hours. It really goes a long way. Nice. Uh, it'd absolutely make his year if you could give a shout out to my brother, Matt, the physics teacher. That is very nice. Yeah, he's the reason I started listening to you and sharing the love of knowledge is really something that has kept us uh, close in spite of our 11 year age difference. It sparked so many uh, interesting and inspired conversations between us. So thank you for what you're doing and helping many of us make it through tough spots. That is much love from Connie from Illinois. So thank you, Connie, and hello to Matt, your brother. Hey, Matt, the physics teacher. Yeah, thanks, guys. It's, we love families that listen and uh, bringing people together, man. It makes us feel good. Yeah, the family that listens to SYSK together stays together. That's right. It's a dire warning. Yep. Uh, if you want to let us know how great somebody in your life is uh, because they introduced you to stuff you should know, we love hearing that stuff. You can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs>